I guess for a niche business, you got to kind of think what's going to be popular two or three years from now, not what's popular right now. Well, welcome to Soldering Soot, a NARSA Idea podcast, and I am Mark Taylor, the executive director. I'm Bobby Duran, president of NARSA Idea, and really excited about today's podcast featuring Joe McGovern. Uh, Joe McGovern is a well-known in the industry, uh, ran tanks and tabs for a long time, and uh, I'm really looking forward to learning more about his career. Yeah, Joe's going to make for a, a great podcast. I met Joe probably late 80s, early 90s, right when he was starting uh, to, to sell a lot of plastic tanks into the radiator industry. And uh, Joe's a real gentleman of our industry. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, interviewing him today because part of the reason doing this podcast is to be able to record the history of our industry and the people that have really made a, a big impact. So, you know, without further ado, let's, uh, let's talk to Joe. Well, appreciate it. I, you know, I feel really honored that um, you all invite me to participate in this uh, podcast and I think it's going to be a bunch of fun and, Look forward to it. You know, Joe, we want to we want to have you start um, by, uh, you know, we want to start at the beginning of when you first got in the radiator business. And we want to have you, you know, tell our listeners, um, you know, about about some of the history. We'll just jump right in and I'll kind of get started. Uh, I want to kind of go back a little bit further before I, my actual radiator business. Um, I was always a car guy. My dad was a car guy, and uh, I remember, I guess, my first introduction to a cooling system when uh, I was thinking I was about four years old. My dad had a blue 53 Chevrolet, and he uh, would always set me up on the fender when he was working on the car. So, I, you know, I was always, you know, really into that. And, and uh, so I remember one day he set me up on the, he had the hood open, he set me up on the fender, and he had walked around back getting some tools. It was real cold out that day. And um, I was kind of moving around and I grabbed hold of this heater hose and started crying, burnt my hand and everything. Didn't blister it. I think he came running around. He, I remember he gave me this deep well socket to hold on to and it got <laughs> cooled my hand down. So that was my first introduction to the cooling industry. So my old boy I was in the Boy Scouts growing up and my old scout master he had a headhunting agency so I called him up and his name was Lou I said Lou I said if if you ever have anything that comes open automotive wise I'd, I'd like to get back into sales and he says okay he said let me see what I can find for you so about a week later he calls me up and he goes hey Joe I got a radiator core manufacturer it's getting ready to open a new warehouse in Nashville. They're looking for an outside salesman. And then, what do you think about that? And I went, well, you know, I remember the whole time working in the service stations, I remember we did maybe three pull-offs and we actually pulled a radiator out of a car and set off to get it fixed or new core put in it. And then I had built a, took a Chevrolet Vega and put a 327 v8 in it and i gone to one of the radiator shops there in town i had him build me a radiator for it and so that was my whole experience with the radiators i thought you know i've sold a lot of gaskets and belts and hoses and piston rings but 
I don't know how this radio deal is going to go. So I so I go over and talk to him. So he set me up with uh, uh, an interview, and uh, at Ma this was with Manga Manufacturing, and uh, so at that time Dave Greenfield was uh, the uh, sales manager, and Dave had a family emergency, so he wasn't able to come up, and so the president of the company ended up flying into Nashville, and his name was John Malloy, and John at one time had been. He'd actually been a salesman for GNO. He had become sales manager for GNO. And then uh, when the Allen Group actually bought Mangum from uh, Al Strangey, let me back up a little bit. Mangum Manufacturing had been around since uh, 1953 or four, I believe it was. And it had been owned by Al Strangey. It started out out in uh, Odessa, Texas, and then they moved it to Dallas is where their headquarters was. And um, Al had taken it. And the thing about Al was he was a uh, real family guy. And he believed in, uh, you know, family being involved and stuff. And so he opened up, after he opened up Dallas, first satellite uh, manufacturing plant was in Atlanta and he opened a, and he hired a husband and wife to be the plant manager and the office manager of this, this plant. And he opened another one in Kansas City, did the same thing, a husband and wife, opened another one in Houston. Excuse me, it was a husband and wife. And so he, he was real family oriented. So uh, he wanted to retire and, and so he ended up selling the business to the Allen Group. And the Allen Group at that time had was their claim to fame was Allen test equipment, your engine diagnostic machines. And they had bought GNO out up in New Haven, Connecticut. And so they bought Mangum. And when they did, they left it as two separate companies. GNO was, was kind of a northern company, and Mangum was at that time was predominantly. Were they doing the mostly aftermarket at that Southeast. time, Joe? Uh, in, in, and all aftermarket. All we did, all we built, yeah, all we built was cores and Mangum's uh, claim to fame really at that time was industrial cores. They had got their start building oil filled uh, radiator cores. And so John, he and I had, he was a car guy. And so John Malloy and I at this interview just head off really, really great. And during the interview, he says, hey, you got the job if you want it. And he said, go home, talk to your wife. Because it's going to entail some travel. You're going to be traveling Kentucky and Tennessee and Southern Illinois and Southern Indiana. He said, you'll be out, you know, probably half a month, you know, out calling on radio shops. And I said, okay. So I went home, talked to Sherry. We talked it over and, and uh, called him back up the next morning. I said, I'll take it. He said, good. I need you to start next week. And I said, I can't do that. I said, the fellow I worked for, Morris, was, he was over in Israel. And I said, he's going to be gone for a month. So I said, if you want me, you got to wait a month. If you don't, go hire somebody else. And he said, that's pretty ballsy of you to say something like that. And I said, well, you know, I, I think you'd respect it if I worked for you not to just quit. And he goes, I agree. Come to work for me in a month. I said, okay. So ended up doing that. And uh, and what year was this, Joe? This was in 
uh, it was like in the fall of 76. And um, so I was 25 at the time. And um, so first, uh, first week, you know, I go to work for them. They flew me out to Dallas and we make this whirlwind tour through the plant, seeing how cores are made. And there was actually three of us that were being hired by the company, three sales guys. And so we made this whirlwind tour and we were supposed to go in, have these instructional meetings and all that stuff. Well, the fellow that was supposed to be teaching us, he kept getting interrupted by phone calls. And so there's me and two other guys just sitting around the table telling each other about ourselves and talking all day long. And that was it. And, and so they said, okay, you know, next week we're gonna put you out on the road with one of the other sales guys and you can ride with him for a week and then you're out on the road. So I went out next week with a fella and uh, didn't learn a whole lot from him. He wasn't, I was always more of a technical guy. So I, I didn't, he wasn't, he was more just kind of a sales guy and that was it. So first week I was really fortunate. I took off, went up into Kentucky, no moan. And on the second day that I was uh, working, uh, went into this radio shop in Danville, Kentucky, a little town kind of on the eastern part of Kentucky. And uh, it probably had a population, I'm guessing about the around 5,000 people in this town. And I had been in just a handful of radio shops, really, the ones we I rode with this guy the week before was, you know, one or two man operations and no inventory or nothing. That was pretty common for a lot of radiator shops, small radiator shops, yeah. two, three yeah. men, no inventory would go over, buy a core from a local distributor, or call up and have a core sent to them or whatever. Right. So um, I walk into this shop up in Kentucky and he probably was a block, was a white block building, and he probably uh, I'm trying to think the size of it, maybe a about a eight thousand square foot building, something like that, six thousand, eight thousand square foot building. And I walk in the door and I look, and here's probably fifty cat cores, D eights, D nines, D sixes, uh, Terex truck cores and so i walk in and uh his name was dan lock lock radiator and dan dan was like kind of reminded me of robert mitchell he had a voice like robert mitchell and he even kind of looked at that mountain man looked to him and so i walk in and, and uh, dan looks at me and he goes well there's two kind of radiator sales i told him who it was and i was looking at him he said there's two kind of salesmen he said uh, what kind are you? And I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, well, there's what I call a pencil pusher salesman. He said, these guys come in, they got a fountain pen or they got a pencil with the name of their company on it. They hand that to you and say, hey, I'm a so-and-so and I'd like you to buy from me. And he said, that's about all they know. They know about that pencil and that's about all they know about. And he said, then there's radio salesman. And this radio guy, he can walk out into a shop and he can go, oh, that's an 8 Uh, Ford 
tractor radiator core, right? you know, radio right there. And that's a D9. Um, that's a, you know, GM type model uh, radiator. He says, so which one are you? And I said, well, I said, I've been in the radio business now for basically two weeks. I said, I guess I'm a pencil pusher salesman. And I'll tell you what, he goes, call your boss up. He knew uh, Dave Greenfield, who was our sales manager. He says, call your boss up. He said, well, you supposed to make so many calls a day or something? And I said, yeah. He said, you know, back then we were, we were making, supposed to make anywhere from six to eight calls a day. And, and it was just easy because there was a ton of radio shops back then. Yeah, I was going to say, Joe, I mean, I don't know if our listeners, okay, know that probably in 1976, there were over, probably over 14,000 radio shops in the United States, maybe close to 15,000. Because when I got in, when I got into business in 1981, we, we had over 14,000 radio shops in the United States. So, yeah. Yeah. So there was no shortage, no shortage for places to make sales calls. Not at all. Every little town had a radio shop in it, you know. So anyway, so he says, call your boss up and tell him you want to stay here with me for a couple of days. He said, I'm going to teach you how to be a radio salesman. And so I called him up and they said, sure, stay there with him. You know? So he taught me a lot about, you know, how to look, you know, what kind of core you should put in this. You know, you want to put a flat pin with no louvers in the off-road machinery. You got a truck, you're either going to put a louvered flat pin or you're going to put a BT type core, which we're just starting to use back then. And he says, he taught me a lot. And we became real great friends. Uh, he was a good stock car guy. And uh, matter of fact, he was kind of like a mentor and a dad to me. And he and his wife would meet Sherry and I, and we all went to the races in Atlanta and Charlotte. And, um, different tracks we would go to. So we became real good friends. And uh, he had two sons that worked for him. And uh, matter of fact, they still have a shop operating today. Um, they got out of the heavy duty and ended up, they built, I mean, first class street rods and they build radiators for their own use basically now, but uh, they still have, they still operate a radiator shop. Anyway, so Dan taught me a lot of how to, uh, go in and know what you're talking about. And he said, people will respect you if you're able to go in and go up to a guy who's working on a bench and you can, you know, identify what he's working on. So the other thing is I learned in the regular business also have something to talk about. And, and you know, why is your VT core better than Daniel's VT core? Why is your uh, D9 core better than somebody else's we, we at the time we had a uh, back then their d8s and d9s had a tie bar that uh, was in the core and ours went all the way through the core we pierced the whole tie bar where daniel at the time just had kind of a solder on bar that went through like the first two rows of tubes and uh, so you know you had something to talk about you it was more of a technical thing i really enjoyed so uh, back, let's see, see, everything went along fine with Mangum. And really, matter of fact, um, go back to John Malloy. I went to work for him, I guess it was like August or September. And the NARSA convention that year, the national convention, was actually held for the first time at Opryland. And uh, 
So he said, hey, get your wife and said, I'd like y'all to come to this convention. And uh, I got home to tell Sherry, I said, you know, hey, we got invited to this convention. And they wanted, you know, back then people dressed up going to conventions. And, yes, they uh, did. Yeah. And so, you know, we were, you know, here we were, we were 25 years old. We didn't have any good dress clothes. So we had to go out and buy clothes or anything, go to this convention and uh, get there. And I, you know, there's probably 2,200, 2,300 people about, you know, that time that would go to these national conventions. And man, I was just overwhelmed. And uh, so, did Magnum did Magnum have a uh, have a, a booth? Uh, did they exhibit at yes, uh, yes. at the national yeah, convention? Mangum, Mangum was real big on exhibiting, and um, the uh, one thing about Mangum was, like I said, they followed suit with with uh, what Al Strangi had done. And so, when there was a convention, they told the sales guys, "Hey." Take your wife and go to the convention. And the beauty about what taking your wife to these conventions was, Sherry helped me get a lot of business that I never got because back then the ladies would all go on these ladies tours and they'd, you know, go yeah. visit a house or something or they'd go to a museum and, you know, they'd be riding on the bus and sit down and um, start talking to the lady who sit beside her, you know, what do you do? Well, my husband's a salesman from Angam. Well, we got a rare shop, you know, so and so, and and she go back to her husband. You know, you ever talk to a guy at Mangum, and then so you know that would seem, you know, happened. And that same thing happened really with tanks and tabs. I mean, I took Sherry with me to everything uh, we did, uh, convent the conventions and shows we had. Uh, like I said we had one annual convention every year, and it would have you know twenty three, twenty five hundred people. Then we had the regional conventions, which the regionals back then would draw four to five hundred people. Yep. And then the hands on started. And I remember it was one year Sherry and I went to either 31 or 35 weekends. We were gone from the house going to an ARSA function somewhere. Uh, and a lot of these little hands zones, you know, maybe had 20, 25 guys, but it was like I could come back on Monday and two or three people that I met these hands on are calling me up and would, hey, want to order a tank from you or whatever. And um, so that that's, uh, the Narcissus conventions were, like I say, a, a go-to for me through Mangum and through my tanks and tabs days. Yeah, how did you get then, how did, you know, how did you end up then at, at Magnum and then uh, and then continued uh, continued on? Because at some point now you uh, you start to go down the path of self-employment. Yeah, well, what happened was um, Mangum and merged, we merged with GNO. And when that happened. Um, Even though you were, Joe, you, you guys were still owned by the same company, but they actually merged you, though. Is that, is that yeah, what well, you're saying? Yeah, what happened? We were both still owned by the Allen Group. And um, GNO was a lot bigger company than us. But Mangum was a really high profitable company. And um, Joe, it was that because GNO was doing a bunch of OE work for Mac and some other OEs then, like uh, Kenworth or whatever, and that was low margin uh, business. That was a lot of it. Yeah, they had real yeah. low margin on their OE side. We were strictly aftermarket, and we were um, non-union, 
And GNO at that time had some union plants. And so, like I say, our whole margins on everything was a lot greater than what GNOs were. Mm-hmm. Well, we go to these meetings with the Allen Group, and you know they're looking at the bottom line, and some of these numbers don't put too good for you know GNO versus us. And uh, so it kind of ticked them off. And GNO at the time was probably uh, we were maybe a fourth of the size of GNO. And how, how how big how big was Magnum at that time? At that time, we how- had um, twenty locations. Wow. And um, <laughs> we were. Um, and how many factories? We had. Um, uh, seven, seven, seven plants. And um, so basically, GNO started wanting to influence more of what we were doing. And the complete radio came about. And uh, so I had well, uh, Joe. What, Joe, what year are we talking now? Uh, when this transition's happening and this this merger's happening? Yeah. So, well, let me back up just a little bit. I went. I was in sales, and um, I was only in say outside sales for uh, Mangum for about a little over a year. And the warehouse we had in Nashville. Like I say everything they had was husband and wife teams. They had hired a couple from Dallas. Um, the fellow had worked for Mangum in Dallas, and he heard they were opening this place in Nashville. And he goes, you know, hey, I'd like to move to Nashville. He and his wife moved to Nashville, and about a year later, she got real homesick, and she wanted to go back to Texas. So they were without a um, anybody to run the warehouse. And sure, at that time was uh, still a stay-at-home mom, and so they said, "Hey, won't you and Sherry take over the warehouse in Nashville?" And uh, I said, "Okay, you know, give me a time. They'll get off the road, be home with my kid, and uh, Sherry and I get to work together." So we ran it, and um, Mangum opened a warehouse in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so I had uh, gone over. One thing that was kind of nice working for Mangum, they let other sales guys go into other people's territories. Because they had the, they had the philosophy a lot of time that, you know, everybody, I don't care how popular you are, there's going to be people that don't like you. And there's going to be people that uh, might head off with somebody else in the company. So they, a lot of times they'd send a sales guy over to another territory, just kind of help out do a blitz or something and hit some of the guys that the guy who owned that territory, you know, wasn't doing anything well with. So they'd send me over to North Carolina and me being a stock car guy, I, I fell in love with North Carolina. And uh, I told him, I said, Hey, I, if, if anything ever opens up, I, I wouldn't mind moving to North Carolina. And where we lived in that, and we lived in a little town, um, about 25 miles out of Nashville and lived on a dead end gravel road and bought a brand new had a house a guy built for his daughter and then she didn't get married so he put the house on sale we bought it it's our first house and anytime it snowed there was so much tree cover the snow would stick to this gravel road and it might be a week or so whatever melt and it was just it was, you would 
straight down a hill and straight up a hill to get to our house. And so it's hard to get in and out of there. So anyway, I get this phone call from Dallas. They go, hey, um, we're going to reopen a plant in Orlando. And we're going to take the fellow that's our warehouse manager in Charlotte and move him to Orlando. Would you like to go to North Carolina? And I said, you bet. And they said, well, you better talk over your wife first. And I said, okay. So they said, why don't you do this? I said, why don't y'all go over to Charlotte, you know, this coming weekend, tour the town, look at the neighborhood, see if it's something you really want to do. So Sherry and I go over there, and it was uh, it was Halloween, right before Halloween when we went over there. And uh, everybody drove around. A lot of people were dead. We were always those Halloween people. Everybody was decorating and stuff, and uh, the azaleas and stuff were in bloom, and it just felt we fell in love with Charlotte. <laughs> so she goes, "Yeah, this would be great." And I said, "Well, you know, the beauty about North Carolina over here." I said, "I was over here a couple of times working, and when it snows, it would snow, and by nine o'clock, it's all melted, and you know, it all goes away." So we ended up taking a job, and we moved over there. Um, between Christmas and New Year's um, 1978. And so we rented an apartment. We had our house up for sale in Nashville. Mangum ended up putting us in a furnished apartment. You know, all expenses paid. And uh, I never, my father, that was in December, and I never sold the house until I think it was March. And they were paying this rent the whole time and then we decided to build a house so we had a we built a house we never got into it until i think it was june and like i said they were right coming they paid everything this whole time anyway uh i told sherry i said you know never snows you know it'll be, it'll be great over there well that february uh february 1979 <laughs> um there was a blizzard that went from georgia all the way up to the whole northeast and the Daytona 500 was televised for the first time ever live on CBS. And uh, I remember that Sunday morning I got up and it was snowing outside. And I looked out and it was maybe a couple inches of snow on the ground. And uh, I called my dad up and I said, hey, you going to be watching the race today? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, it's snowing over here. And he says, well, he's going to be careful. And I said, I will. And so it kept snowing and we kept looking out and snowing. That afternoon, I'm sitting there watching the race on TV, and I look out, and there's probably eight inches of snow on the ground, and it's still coming down. Well, the next morning, there was 17 inches of snow. It was a record for Charlotte. They never had that much snow ever. And the whole town was paralyzed. I mean, nothing was moving anywhere. They had no plows, no salt. I was going to say, yeah, they're not prepared for it, right? No, anything. And uh, <laughs> so... Now you're looking up. at your wife and you're just waiting. Yeah, she, she, yeah, she's going, yeah, never snows up here. Always melts, <laughs> isn't it? And so we end up spending three days in this apartment, you know, without getting out with a dog and a little kid and and uh, couldn't go to work. And anyway, so she, to, to this day, she still reminds me uh, of how it never snows over there. But uh, so we, we were running a warehouse. That was like, say, uh, January of 79 when I started that job. Well, October of 79, I get a phone call. And uh, it's uh, Dallas. And they go, hey, Joe, we want to offer you another job. And I said, what's that? They go, well, 
at that time they had the manufacturing plant and the warehouse all in one building in, in Dallas. They said, we're going to get a new building across the street. I think it was 25, 30,000 square feet, big building. And they said, we want you to come down, put the whole thing together, put the rats in it, hire the people. We want you to be the manager of this new warehouse we're starting up. So, so now uh, this is in Dallas. This is in Dallas. And so we've been in our house. We've built a house, gotten it in June. This is October. So, yeah, I really hate to even talk to Sherry about it, but I told her, and <laughs> she goes, well, you know, I said, is this advancement? You know, we probably, you know, grow ourselves. And so she goes, okay, go down there. So I went down and um, we never, um, it took us till December to hire somebody to take my place and Sherry was running the warehouse in Charlotte. I'm in Dallas. And uh, it took us to December to get our house sold and hire somebody over there to take the place where she could come down. So we ended up moving again between Christmas and New Year's from North Carolina to, to, to Dallas. Dallas. And I had a, a Camaro at the time. And so here I am. Um, we had a mover, you know, we bought a house in Texas and had movers moving our stuff, but uh, we came back through Tennessee with our family and her family and uh, celebrated Christmas with them. And I had this Camaro and uh, had my son, who at that time was uh, uh, four years old, and uh, had a poodle Airedale dog who was pretty good size. And me and Sherry all in this little Camaro. And so we've gotten some Christmas gifts and stuff. And go, where, you know, where are we going to put all this stuff? So I went out and bought a little rooftop carrier and stuff on this top of Camaro. <laughs> and we took off to Dallas. And you know, about every couple of hundred miles, I'd stop and I'd check the carrier, make sure everything's okay. Everything was fine. Everything was going along. And uh, right as we get into what they call the Mix Master in Dallas, uh, it's where all the interstates come together downtown. And when you go through there, speed limit was 55. You better be doing 80. You're going to get run over. And I hear this noise like something was starting to rattle. And I go, what is that? And all of a sudden I look in the rearview mirror and there goes the top carrier <laughs> flying off the top of the Camaro and 18 wheelers running over everything. And I went, well, there went Christmas. So, and is, and is Sherry going? I told you we should have bought that Jeep Wagoneer, not this Camaro. <laughs> what about yeah. the what about the wood paddled station wagon? Right. Yeah. So and at least uh, it'd make it through the at least it'd make it through the snow also, right? <laughs> like exactly. That yeah, it could have been a four wheel drive. Matter of fact, Dave Greenfield had a Jeep Wagoneer in his four wheel drive. <laughs> but um, anyway, we moved to Dallas, and I bought a house. Uh, right down the street from M.H. Massey, um, who at that time was the, um, everybody knows him as the plant manager and, and core guru of Mangum. At that time, he was the assistant manager, uh, the plant manager. And uh, so... At Magnum. At Mangum, yeah. This is Massey Sr. This is Mitch's dad, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, Massey Sr. Okay. So we all became real close. We'd go camping to get his family and my family. We'd all go camping every weekend. 
Um, me and MH would always hit a local watering hole somehow or another <laughs> on our way home from work, you know, at, at Mangum. And um, so we had a lot of good, good times, good, great, great fun down there. And um, so I've got this warehouse up and going and then they promoted me uh, about a year later to be a uh, materials manager. And the reason they promoted me to materials manager, this is probably what you're talking about, the complete radio year when it come along. So this was like 1980. And um, we had been buying radiators from GNO, complete radiators, for about a year. And they wanted somebody to, and basically what was happening, GNO would just say, here, we're going to send you these radiators. And they would send us, you know, some radiators without us knowing what we wanted or what we really needed or anything else. We just got a supply of complete radiators. And also the radio shops at that time weren't real keen on the complete radiator coming out. They, you know, they all felt like, uh, you know, this is going to infringe on our business. And matter of fact, um, before I moved to Dallas, uh, we had gotten in some complete radiators in Charlotte and Joe Mangum was the sales guy for uh, North Carolina at that time. And Joe looked a lot like Burl Ives. And it was one of these guys that, you know, just, you couldn't be mad at him for anything. But uh, he had some phone call and, and those NARSA, like I say, they had, besides regionals, they had local um, chapters too. And, and so you might have a, a group of, maybe 12 radio shops that had their own little deal and they would have meetings, you know, together. So we get a phone call and they want us to come down to this uh, shop in South Carolina. We said, yeah, we'll be, you know, enjoy coming down. So Joe gets me to go with him. And we go down there and, and uh, like I say, at that time, Mangum was selling strictly to radio shops. Our main business was Coors. We'd gotten these radiators in and we weren't really doing a whole lot with them. They were sitting on the shelf. Um, and so we go into this shop and there's, like I say, about 12 shop owners in this guy's radio shop all sitting around some chairs. And they go, uh, we want to know why you're trying to put us out of business. And we go, we don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you do. You've been sold radiators over here to this junkyard right down the road. My competitor, he's got Modine radiators in there. And I went, well, that's modine. That didn't have anything to do with us. Well, yeah, all you manufacturers, y'all are all together in on this stuff. He said, y'all are all trying to put us out of business. And I mean, we were just walked like dogs out of there with our tails hanging between us. I mean, they just chewed us out one way or another that whole night. We never even get to talk to them about mangum. <laughs> and um, so anyway, I ended up going to Dallas with complete radiators. So they, they, they moved me up to what they call materials manager. And I was in charge of ordering complete radiators, scheduling them out, like 90 days out uh, from GNO, and also was over all the raw materials. I was ordering all of our copper from Sweden, our brass from here in the U.S., our solder from different people. And so I learned a lot about purchasing. And so 1978, the Ford Escort came out with the first plastic tank radiator in the U.S., Volkswagen had had one, and some Mercedes and BMWs had had some. Was that a uh, was that a plastic copper or was it like yep. a mechanic 
The Europeans tended to be mechanically bonded aluminum, right? Exactly. And so this was a a copper core with plastic tanks. And um, we were buying, we we stamped a lot of our own headers at Mangum. But we were building at that time, um, when the summer we'd build a thousand automotive cores a day. And um, so, you know, we, we had our own uh, stamping dies and, and uh, presses, but we also had to buy headers too because we couldn't, you know, we just didn't have the capacity for that demand. So we bought a lot of headers from uh, Canadian Auto Radiator. Barry Bartlett was the uh, owner and president of that company. And so I was in contact with Barry, you know, weekly talking with him and stuff. And he and I became friends. And so, uh, we got talking, and, and he said, you know, I, I think I'm going to try and make a, uh, a header for that Ford Escort. And um, so we built one of the first copper brass, you know, tab header cores in the, in the, uh, in the aftermarket. And, and so that kind of intrigued me, this whole thing with plastic radiators. And so... I ended up um, with a real bad infection on my pancreas. I ended up in the hospital for about two months in Texas. And at the same time, my mom was, uh, this is 1974. And uh, so uh, my mom was in Tennessee and she was having some heart issues. And so when I got out of the hospital, I went to the president of Mangum and I said, look, um, I want to go back home and, uh, you know, I understand, you know, um, I enjoyed working with you and all this stuff. And he goes, well, wait a minute, well, you're, you're not going to quit. And, uh, I said, well, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to open a position for you in Tennessee and you can go back into sales. And I said, perfect. So I went back into being on the road for him. And, uh, like I say, GNO was starting to influence some stuff with us. And um, then we merged with Daniel, which became the whole Godan thing. And when that happened, uh, there's way too many salesmen in three companies for what we had. So they called us all in. And uh, I've been with Mangum now for 14 years. And uh, they called us all in to this meeting in Dallas. So we saw into the DFW. We had a meeting at the airport. And they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, some of y'all, we want you to retire. The rest of you, here's what your territory is going to be. And so they gave me my territory was from uh, Arkansas north to the Canadian border. Oh, my. Yeah. So they took me completely out of the southeast, which is, you know, where I knew everybody, all this stuff. And they thought about it. And your Camaro was more appropriate for the southeast than the uh, than the northeast. northern. <laughs> northeast. Yeah, well, I'm back in Nashville. I mean, I'm living in Nashville. Or north central. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, I ended up just went to them and said, "Look, just let me quit." At that time, uh, the way their severance policy was, I would have got a month's pay for every year I had, so I would have got 14 months severance pay. Uh, plus what stock I had and stuff like that. And they said, no, 
I'm not gonna let you do that. Just go out and work this territory. Radio shops are starting to get um, plastic tank radios in their shop, and they were looking, you know, where can I get a tank? Well, a good friend of mine, Phil Sims in Atlanta, he got hooked up with some European company, Wolverine Trent Freight, and um, he had come back and was starting, he was one of the first guys I knew that was actually repairing plastic tank radios. And he was going around to all the junkyards in Atlanta and body shops, and he'd buy a radio for $4 as long as it had two good tanks on it. And he was cutting the header off, and then when he needed it, he'd go over and grab a tank off, just take it off the header and put it on the one he needed. And so I saw how many he had, and, and so I'd go into a radio shop, and a guy would go, man, I wish I could find a tank for this Toyota I got over here. And I go, well, I know a guy. And I call Phil up, and I go, hey, I'm in this guy's radio shop, and he needs a tank. You want to sell it to him? Yeah, I tell him I'll sell it to him for eight bucks. And so I started doing this, and so one day, Phil said, Joe, you need to quit calling me. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, he said, y'all just going to business yourself. He said, I ain't got time for all the shipping and everything. And he said, uh, y'all are going to the tank sale. I said, oh, I, don't, I don't know about that. So about a month later, I was in St. Louis, Missouri. And working with Mangum, I was used, I was always, um, if I went into a guy's shop and he had a problem, I could call the president of the company. I can call the sales manager. And I go, hey, I'm at John's radio shop. Here's the problem we got. What are we going to do about it? And we'd hash it out, and I'd leave there shaking hands with the guy. We'd have his problem solved. Guys, take so care time, of. Yep. By the time we'd merged with Godan, I had to call this guy. He had to call this guy. He had to call this guy. So he went up like five or six people before anybody <laughs> would ever come up with an answer. And it would take two or three weeks. And you know, you got a guy calling you every day. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? So I ended up going into this radio shop in St. Louis, and I'd been in there. I don't know, maybe two or three months before. And I'd left it that I had to call this guy and somebody was going to call him and take care of his problem. And I walk in, he goes, hey, there's no sense you even coming in here. Y'all haven't taken care of my issue. And so I'm just fed up. And so I went back to the hotel and I called Phil Sims up. And uh, I said, Phil, let me ask you something. I said, you really think I could make a living selling plastic tanks? And he goes, I believe you could, Joe. So I called Sherry up and I said, hey, I think I'm going to quit and sell plastic tanks. <laughs> and she was working at a hospital at the time, had a, had a nice position, benefits and all. And uh, she said, you know, whatever you want to do, we'll, we'll work it out one way or another. So I made some phone calls. I called Barry Bartlett up. I said, Barry, I want to ask you a question. If I was open my own business, would you sell me plastic tanks? If he had a line of maybe 25 tanks for some uh, GM and some Fords. Fords and Chryslers, yeah. Joe, Joe, how many how many completes were in the market at that time? At I mean, that time, there was maybe, when we just got into selling completes, we had maybe 45 numbers. And then probably at this time, we had maybe 120, something like that. And that's including metal and plastic? They, they were all metal at this time. Those were all metal. Yeah, nobody had any plastic tank completes at this time. And so what Everything, were they doing? They were, they were making metal knockoffs of the of the plastic stuff to replacement? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Like your, your Chrysler K-Car, which was originally a, a plastic tank radiator, and your Ford Escort, they had a solder, a copper brass replacement. So I called up. Um, I'd also, uh, in my dealings, and dealt with uh, 
thermal components. We bought tubes from them at Mangum. And I called up Bill Dowd on. I said, Bill, I start my own business. I said, you sell thermal goes, Absolutely. So I had a game plan going. And I had $5,000. And uh, I thought, you know, what, what, where am I going to get all the stuff I need? And Joe Armstrong had a radio shop in Nashville. And Joe had a uh, Delco distributorship, which at that time, just about anybody could have, be a Delco dealer. And uh, it didn't take much stuff. So I went to Joe and I said, look, I want to make you a proposition. I said, I'm going to start a company selling plastic tanks. And I'd like you to be my partner because you've got Delco. And here's the deal. We'll start this company up. And neither one's going to take any money out of it at all. Everything we make just pours back into the company, so we'll grow. And I said, I want to come to work for you in your radio shop. And what I'll do is, first thing in the morning, I'll go out and I'll make calls till noon. And then I'll come in after noon and I said, I'll work, you know, either in the shop or I'll, you know, do what we got to do, shipping stuff out or whatever for the tank business. And so Joe says, okay, we'll do it. Well, Joe was, a, Joe was sales oriented. I was sales oriented. And we took his shop at that time. He had a shop. He had an empty bay. And that's what we started tanks and tabs in. We had a one bay deal. We put some racks in there. And, and Joe, that was uh, that was Acorn Radiator? Acorn Radiator. It's 1990. Yeah. We, we start this up. Yeah. And um, he, we had to move the shop, um, I guess, about six months after I started work for him because we're just outgrown the shop. The business took off like crazy. Number one. Mostly mostly truck radiators? Truck radiators. The, the, the truck business had just started going plastic. They're Ford L9000s, mm-hmm. Kenworth, Peterbilt's, and the International Navistar all came out with the Modine built plastic tank radiator. Which and, was the AdTech radiator. Which is the AdTech. And which that first year and a half, the ag tech uh, crimps that were using, they had all kind of problems with. Yeah. And so we had gone and we had every truck dealership in town as our customer. And I had joined fleet, man- fleet maintenance uh, group. We had pretty much every freight company in town. And so we actually moved into a bigger building start a second shift and we were operating eight to midnight in a radio shop a lot of times it was maybe two or three o'clock in the morning before you ever went home because you had stuff you had to take back and deliver that night and the tank business also uh, was starting off good too i had ended up uh, buying a uh, radiator list from narsa and from radio reporter and mailed out letters to everybody the computers were just starting out and i had a computer and and uh, so it just it just kind of exploded. Both both businesses are starting to explode. I guess nineteen ninety, about year ninety one, about a year later, I went to Joe and I said, "Look, you know, the tank business is taking off." I said, "Your radio shop's taking off." I said, "But one of us needs to do something." I said, "The tank business needs to split off." I said, "I'd like to buy it from you." And so. I ended up buying the tank business and moved it off uh, property into another, started my own warehouse. And 
ended up moving um, I think five times in five years, just kept outgrowing the building I was in because the tank business just exploded. Now, um, I was going to say that's when Tanks and Tabs was started. When, when started. you left, yeah, when you left Joe. Well, then no, you we actually were... started, so we called it Tanks and Tabs when we started over in his radio show. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. All right. So that yeah. was a separate company all along then. Yeah, we set up as a separate company all along. Okay. Joe, Joe, you were this thing takes off and you're shipping nationwide to radiator shops, dealerships. Like, like what was tra the trajectory of this thing? Well, what, all right, what I was doing, I was shipping to radiator shops only and I was selling. So I sold in all 50 states, I sold into Puerto Rico, sold into Australia and New Zealand. And all this business came about because the NARSA. I mean, I go to a national convention and, and, uh, set up a booth and people just come by and so this is how the niche kind of started there was about this time i started tanks and tabs it was about about that same time fifth coffee with therm process in dallas started selling plastic tanks uh plastic tank out, out in california started up and already uh kind of started was, up. yeah and so and there was a guy um, in the northeast too wasn't there a guy yeah there was uh, northeast plastic tanks Okay. Capper uh, Radiators, who, who that was. And then uh, um, Mark down in Florida, um, I can't remember his tank business. He had tank business. So we all kind of started up within a year of each other. I think me and Thurm probably started off first, and then Plastank started a couple of months later, and then all were here about the same time. Anyway, so the first show, I think I went with Narsa. I had a tabletop set up and what I had done is starting to kind of start the niche business. Everybody was buying, you know, Plastank and, I mean, uh, excuse me. Yeah, Plastank and all. They were buying from Barry Bartlett and Thermal Components. So everybody was kind of showing the same stuff. And so I had ended up, um, about this time, uh, we lost our Delco dealership. Delco came around and said, okay, just remain a Delco dealer. You got to do a million dollars a year with us. Oh, no way. So we had a Delco dealer there in town. And so I went to him and I said, I want to make a proposition to you. And he said, what's that? I said, I want to buy plastic tanks from Delco through you. I said, you don't have to inventory them. I'll give you an order. I'll pay for them, you know, right then. I said, this will be freebie business for you that you're not even involved in. And he'll help me, you know, stay with Delco. He said, sure, no problem. Well, I thought, well, if this works, I'm going to go around to the dealers and see what happens. So I, I went to a Chrysler dealer and I went, hey, can I go through here and see what's available tank-wise from y'all? And he goes, well, there's nothing available we know of. And I said, well, can I look through the, your computer and everything? And sure. So I go through and I find out, hey, I can buy different tanks from Chrysler and their OE tanks. And I, I made him the same proposition. You don't have to inventory anything. I'll give you an order. It comes in. I pay for them. And free it. He said, great. So I went to Ford dealer, did the same thing. And um, <clears throat> so I had all that coming in. So the next show, I, ended up, I had some stuff that none of the other guys had. And uh, and it's all OE. You have all this OE it's stuff. It's all OE. And everybody yeah. goes, wow, this is good looking stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and also about this time, uh, Fred Kubo and Cash with Daiwa Radiator came into from Japan over to Narsa and they had a national convention, it was the first time they ever showed. So here's two Japanese guys that 
speak broken English. And, you know, people just aren't really talking to them or welcoming or anything. And so I just went over and started talking to them. They go, well, hey, we're going to have a, a hospitality room. We hear that all these uh, manufacturers have hospitality rooms. So we're going to have a hospitality room tonight. We'd like you to come. And um, back then, like I say, Modine and Godin and all these guys have these big elaborate uh, hospitality rooms. So I tell Joe, uh, he, was my, he was my partner you know, at this time still. I said, we need to go up and talk to these Japanese guys in their hospitality room. So we go up there about 8.30 that night, and we're the only guys in there. There's nobody else that comes to their hospitality room. Now you said Fred. This. You said Fred, right? Who? Fred. Who? Yeah. Yeah. With Natoma. Yeah, Natoma. So that's yeah. what they ended up calling it was Natoma here in the U.S. It was Daiwa in in the uh, in Japan. Okay. Fred right. now is a vice president for Daiwa in Japan. Okay. But um, so we go. I remember and Fred. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great guy. And uh, they have this big elaborate spread of sushi big bar and everything in there and there's nobody there but us and i never ate sushi in my life and uh so they said hey you know we'd like you to eat some of this stuff if i give him some squid or something and i put it in my mouth and start chewing on it and man the longer i chew on it the bigger it grows and <laughs> and I, I don't know if i'm gonna swallow this thing and, and uh, i think i end up taking a napkin and covering it up and getting it out of there and Anyway, so we became great friends and uh, built a n nice relationship with them. And they ended up, uh, I was their biggest customer they had in the States. And um, he ended up selling the therm and Plastank. But um, basically, I would buy anything he had. I thought, if you can get it, I'll buy it. So you were stocking oddball stuff. Oddball stuff. Let, let me ask you this, Joe. I, I think this is some sometimes where people go wrong in, in, in our industry is, all right, so you, you stocked all the A movers, but then you stocked the C and D movers. Yeah. Did you charge the same for the C and D movers oh, as no. you did for the... <laughs> right. And, 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 I think, and I think you see that so much in our industry where people find these niches. They find this great situation and then someone just goes, you know what? It's just a lot easier to put 30% on a 40% on a spreadsheet and go up and down the line where if you go and you analyze it, you say, all right, the A movers, I have to have this, this margin, but on this C and D that I'm the only guy that has it, I could have a much higher margin and the customer's happy. You're happy. And, and, and I think that people go wrong in this industry so much in pricing the C's and D's. Uh, yeah. do you agree Good example that? of that was that, that Toyota Super Radiator I'm talking, talking about. At that time, nobody in the aftermarket had this radiator. So it was a dealer item only on the radiator. And the radiator through the dealer was about 500 bucks. I was, you know, most time, most guys at that time were selling, pla I sold my plastic tanks, you know, your popular GMs, all that stuff was like 20 bucks for it at some point. Well, that Toyota Super Tank was $95. And people laughed at me and said, you'll never sell it. But I did. I sold quite a few of them because a guy could buy a tank for 95, charge a guy $100, I put it on his radiator. So he, you know, he's doing it for $200. And the guy, the only other opportunity was to go to the dealer and pay 500 bucks. So because um, a lot of that stuff I ended up selling. So anyway, um, I'm at a convention a couple of years later. 
and uh, then Las Vegas had a national convention. I had a pretty elaborate booth at that time. I think I had three or four tables set up with stuff. And we broke for lunch. Back then, we used to run the trade show, I think, pretty much all day long. And we broke for lunch, had a big luncheon with, you know, 1,000 people, 2,000 people, whatever it was at luncheon. And I come back, and standing in my booth are these three guys with suits on. So I just walk back into my booth. They're actually inside my booth. They're not standing outside the booth. They're back inside my booth. <laughs> As I walk in there. You sure it wasn't, was, it wasn't copyright infringement attorneys or something like that? <laughs> I didn't know who they were. <laughs> the IRS. You shouldn't be you shouldn't be selling this product, Mr. McGovern. <laughs> yeah, I walk in. I said, you know, hey, can I help you out? This one guy said, you sure can. And he picks up this Ford tank, and it was a, I remember now it was a Thunderbird, and I was buying it from the Ford dealer in Nashville. Oh no! And he, and he goes, I want to ask you where you got this tank. And there's another guy standing with him to look kind of nervous. And I said, I bought that from Mid-10 Ford in Nashville, Tennessee. I said, I worked out a deal. We went through, found out what tank Ford Motor Company offered. I said, that's, that's where I bought it. And he said, that's a good answer. And um, he said, it's all we need to know. They turned around and walked off. Well, that 10 minutes goes by, and one of these guys comes back. He goes walking back in the booth and he goes, hey, I want to thank you. I said, what's that? He said, you just saved my job. And uh, this fellow's name was Bob Kolka. And Bob worked for Carlisle Plastics in Erie, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And he made that tank for Ford. And Ford had gone by and saw this tank and they thought Bob was selling this tank to me. And he said, when they found out you actually bought a Ford chain, he said, everything was great. He said, I was going to lose the Ford line contract. Yeah. And uh, wow. he said, but you, you saved our deal. And I said, well, I appreciate that. Well, he and I became great friends. And um, as a matter of fact, he invited me up to Erie, Pennsylvania to go through Carlisle Plastics. And their security at that time was so tight. Uh, you know, you had, not just anybody could go in there. And he, so he says, look, you're going to be my grandson. Kind of my grandson he introduced me to. As he goes, uh, <laughs> we'll take it to the plant. And so I went in there and I was just blown away with what a plastic tank factory looked like. Here's, I think he had at that time probably 100 machines running. And a lot of these had uh, what they call multi-cavity dies where they could make two or three tanks with one stamp. Uh, or one wow. injection, yeah, and this thing's running 24 hours a day, and I'm looking at stuff, and I start looking at these tanks, and this stuff I've never seen before, and I said, I've never seen tanks like that, and he goes, no, he said, the radiator's not even out yet, and he said, they were building stuff, you know, for radiators that were going to come out, you know, go in a car, let's say this is 19, let's say this is 95, well, the stuff they were building was for 96 model cars, and, you know, those cars weren't even going to hit the market for another uh, eight months or so. And so we became close friends. And so a lot of overruns and uh, <laughs> stuff. Bob couldn't sell it to me, but he could give it to me. And, and so I'd, I'd be sitting there at the warehouse and uh, Bob traveled the whole U S and he didn't like to fly. He drove everywhere. And uh, he'd, 
walk in the door and go, hey, Joe, what are you doing? And I'm like, come on there, I got something for you. He go back there and open his t- trunk up and there'd be, you know, 50 to 100 tanks in the trunk of his car, stuff I've never seen before. And uh, he says, you know, we won't be able to get you more, but he says, you'll have this one. And so I ended up with a lot of agricultural stuff, truck stuff. I mean, just there was some stuff I never did find out what some of that stuff fit. And um, I, I know, Joe, one time I, I used to buy tanks from you early in my career for the FedEx uh, uh, MT, was it, MT35 or, uh, or 45 step vans. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it used to be that. I could order four or five from you, and then I go to reorder, and you're like, "You didn't have any more." <laughs> I guess, I guess nothing, nothing arrived in the trunk that month. You know? So, yeah, I, yeah. My, and my and my customer never understood. They're like, "You just repaired four of these for me." I'm like, "I, I'm sorry, I just can't get any more." <laughs> so, I'll kind of jump forward a little bit now. Uh, the plastic tanks on the trucks have pretty much come. Uh, a staple. Uh, Valio is building Mac and Volvo, and Bear is building um, uh, Freightliner at that time. And so I went to both of them and I said, Hey, I want my tanks from you. And they both laughed at me. <laughs> and uh, it took me, I guess, almost a year. And I finally got Bear to sell me tanks. Valio. Wouldn't sell me tanks, but they'd sell me cores. And so I was buying Mac truck plastic tank cores from them. And I was really one of the only ones in the country that had them because nobody else wanted to fool with them. And I went, I could buy the tanks cheaper through the dealer and I could build a Mac truck, like an RD, Mac RD radiator with Valio's core with the original tank straight from Mac. And I could build an OEM radiator cheaper than you know marty was selling at that time an active all-metal radiator and i had the oe right there and um so that's how i really started jumping into the truck complete business and then i started you know as i did that i started getting calls for um half core international radiators and stuff like that and so this kind of how i got hooked up with northern he had a pretty good line a lot of that stuff and i started became a distributor for Northern, started buying his product and stocking it. And by now, my business had gone from 95% plastic tanks and 5% cords to now I'm probably 60% truck radiators and 40% tanks. And um, so business was going on pretty good. And then get a phone call from Valio and they tell me that uh, they've been bought out by a company called Titan X and they weren't sure if they were going to be able to sell to us. Tell to me because I was buying from my own. So I hang up. I'm sitting there thinking and um, next thing I know, um, they're calling Roger, the president and owner of uh, Northern and he goes, hey Joe, he said, um, I think we need to make a trip. And I said, well, Sandy said, well, I know you buy from Valio. He said, I'm buying from Valio. And he says, we need to get on an airplane and go talk to them, see if we can continue doing this and then being bought out. So he said, meet me in uh, Chicago tomorrow and we'll fly together into New York. And I said, okay. So go up there and we're flying to over. And he goes, 
what's your long-range plans? Don't you know, uh, you gonna sell your business to your son one day, or what are you gonna do? I said, I don't even know. I said, I know I don't want to just come in one day and tell everybody, hey, adios, I'm out of here, I'm retiring, and lock the doors. I said, I, I, said, I just don't know. And he goes, well, he said, if you're ever interested, I might consider buying you out. And I said, okay. So I didn't even think any more about it. We went up, had a good meeting. And, uh, I know the two of y'all were, were buying from Valio at the same time. And uh, I think y'all were either one day before us or one day after us in there in the meeting. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was like a revolving door. It yeah, was. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so we ended up, you know, working it out. And uh, I started buying more and more and more stuff from from Northern. And uh, uh, so here I am now. I'm, I'm selling high-performance radiators and selling. I, I got into forklift radiators really before I got into truck radiators through Natoma. Natoma. Because they had yeah. the OE, Toyota, and Nissan, and Mitsubishi forklift radiators, and I was selling those. Matter of fact, I was selling some of those to Northern, and uh, so we had kind of a deal going back and forth. So I kind of saw the handwriting on the wall when it was going to take a buyer's group to... Uh, to buy from some of these companies. So I guess it was, this was probably two years later. And I sat there and talked to Sherry. And I said, you know, I said, I just wonder if Roger is really serious. And uh, so I called Roger up and I went, hey, you really serious about wanting to buy me out? And he goes, yeah. So it took us another year back and forth. And one thing I got to say for Roger, he invited me up uh, as a customer to their annual uh, sales and managers meeting and here I am sitting in this meeting and I'm seeing all their numbers or profits or sales you know didn't hide anything from me I'm not an employee or anything all I am is just a potential customer you want to buy out and I thought you know that's pretty uh, pretty amazing he trusts me to come into something like this and see everything and you know I could have left there and told everybody all about their company and um so we ended up, like I said, made, made an agreement in 2011. And um, Roger bought me out. And part of the stipulation was that all my employees got to stay stay on, which they did. And I told him, I said, you know, the one thing that my job as owner of Tanks and Tads had become was I spent my whole time dealing with inventory trying to find new products, reordering, placing orders. And I said, I really miss that customer contact. And I said, I'd like to go out on the road with you. And he goes, we can do that. And um, so I said, well, the other thing I'd like to do, I said, you know, Sherry and I have been together. We, 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 you know, she came to work with me at Tanks and Tabs, you know, when I split off from Joe about a year after we started it. And we worked together in the radio business for Mangum. And I said, uh, you know, we've been hanging around together a long time. I said, I, I don't want to go back to being on the road four weeks out of a month and, you know, coming home seeing my wife just on weekends. And I said, I've got a motorhome. I said, I'd like to just try to use that motorhome to <laughs> take off and do that. He goes, any way you want to do it. 
thanks to everybody, Northern used to pay me to go camping. And, uh, <laughs> so we, we, That's I a great covered, retirement deal. It was. I mean, I covered <laughs> 10 states. From, uh, I'm Virginia, jealous. <laughs> all the way to Louisiana. How many and, miles? How many miles did you cover during your northern run with the RV? Do you think? Uh, probably. Uh, well, I had two different ones during that time. You wore so, one out. Yeah. <laughs> so, You're like yeah, the only guy that that I know that's owned a motorhome that's actually put a lot of miles on one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we probably uh, on the ones. Well, I've had four RVs. <laughs> than the one we got now, and of those four, I probably got uh, probably close to two hundred thousand miles. Wow! Did um, did uh did did Roger pay for the fuel? Yeah, I, I was paid uh, mileage, <laughs> so he paid. You know, I just like anybody else run a car. I just turned in my mileage. They except your car, it. except your car got about six or seven miles to the gallon. Yeah, but. Um, <laughs> And, and what was great was, is, you know, he said, work, he said, you know, you do your territory any way you want to do it. It's up to you. And so what we would do, we'd go out where most of the sales guys in Northern were flying somewhere. They would fly out on a Monday somewhere, uh, get in Monday night, they'd work Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then, uh, you know, fly back home on Friday. Well, since I didn't have to go home, we would take off and we'd go out on the road for three weeks. So I was, you know, on Monday morning, I'd take off, and a lot of times on Sunday, I'd take off, and uh, I don't start, I'd get somewhere, I'd rent a car, she'd have her car that we were pulling behind the RV, she could go out and run around, and I'd rent a car, and I'd go out and make sales calls, and uh, what I'd try to do is work somewhere for a whole week, and then that weekend, we'd either stay there and run around and explore the town, or we'd head somewhere else. And uh, we'd go out for three weeks at a time and, and just had a ball doing it. You know, as far as the niche business nowadays, you know, you just got to kind of look around. Uh, and I guess for a niche business, you got to kind of think what's going to be popular two or three years from now, not what's popular right now. And, um, you know, all this stuff, I still think one of the things we were, kind of thinking at it northern when i left was you know what's going to happen with the elect you know the electric industry electric truck electric car um and, and like i say what you gotta do you gotta go to trade shows you gotta shake a lot of hands and you gotta listen to a lot of people you know uh, that's where you're gonna learn is is, is going out and, and listening to other people and and seeing what's out there you can't you can't now, you know, nowadays, I, I just, with COVID going on, uh, I told Sherry the other day, I said, man, I would hate to be a sales guy right now because all they can do is sit there and work on the phone, which I hated working on the phone. I wanted to come in and, and meet eye to eye with somebody and go to a trade show and, and pop hoods and take pictures and all this stuff. And you, and you can't do that now with, with COVID going on. You know, everything's canceled. Apex is canceled. Um, I'm hoping coming here we'd all get to see each other out there in October. Yeah, I, I look at COVID as, as you know, the world pivoted very quickly. You know, I would have never thought my kid would be going to school online like that would be a possibility. And, and the way I look at what's going to happen in the future, and I'd like to get your comments on this, Joe, from your experience, is that what we're doing now, this Zoom call, 
uh, wouldn't have been as accepted, you know, a year ago as a way of talking to somebody and having a long-term conversation. However, uh, but I also think there's no substitute of visiting a client, going to their shop, opening up hoods. I almost think that the key in the future is, you know, establish that relationship, get into the shop, but then you, it'll be a lot easier to maintain the relationship, I imagine, through Zoom calls and whatnot. Uh, and then, you know, buzzing in a couple of times a year and, you know, going out to dinner and going fishing and, and going up under the hoods and, and things like that. What what, are, what is your take on, on that? I agree with you. You know, I, I, I guess I was too much of an old school sales guy, but the rest of the sales guys at Northern were a lot younger than me. And that's where I go out and stay out working all the time. They may have only traveled a week a month and uh, they spent those other three weeks on the phone. And I think, as I say, you go out, meet the guy, and then you can, you know, keep up to date with him on, send him a flyer and call him up and say, hey, let's go over this, you know, on the phone. That was before Zoom, man, with Zoom and everything you can do online nowadays. I mean, it's, it's you know, you can actually show a product online. And, uh, so, yeah, that's the whole future of everything. But there's no substitute to going to the hospitality suite and eating that squid sushi. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now that yeah, now that you're retired, Joe, what 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 are you up to nowadays? Uh well, um, I got into fooling with um, remote control, um, little off-road scale trucks, and um, what's what scale? Are these gassers or are electric? These are electric. They're one tenth scale, and um, met a whole group of new friends you know i got you know maybe a hundred new guys that i've become friends with that i never knew before and uh, we have competitions um uh, matter of fact a little town i'm in here a guy's got uh, one of the best places in the whole country set up out in the woods with uh, all kind of trails and everything that you can run and and he has uh, a couple times a month we have organized meets and before COVID was going on, we really had a lot of people showing up, but uh, that, that's what I've been doing, doing with it. So. Is this through Facebook and social media? You kind of get together? Yeah, yeah that's how that's... I kind of found out about it was same kind of thing. I went and started researching. Uh, I saw, saw one of these trucks and then I started going online and I spent six months online looking at different trucks that were made and I thought I had narrowed down to what I wanted to buy to start with and then um when I actually uh, got out there starting looking at the real thing, I figured out that I was completely off base and uh, went a whole different route. And uh, pretty much everything now is, is uh, all custom made on my truck. It's not store bought. <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Joe, I really want to, I want to thank you uh, for sharing your story. I certainly I, I learned, I knew bits and pieces of the story, but I, I, I learned a lot. And, um, and, and, and I think there'll be a lot of people in the organization that, that will be able to learn from, from your business. And, you know, I always considered you the ultimate niche guy. And, uh, and, and, I've, and I certainly uh, used uh, your example in my business of, of sort of marketing niche stuff. So I really appreciate it on behalf of NARSA IDEA uh, I'd just like to thank you very much and, and we appreciate this opportunity. Okay, I appreciate it. And, and one thing I'd like to close with is, like I say, NARSA, I would never had 
my company would never become what it became if it hadn't been for NARSA. Just meeting different manufacturers, meeting customers. Uh, that's where, as a matter of fact, Roger and I met through NARSA. Um, I really encourage guys to go out and go to a NARSA show. And uh, or if you're not a member, talk to somebody that is a member and let them tell you what it's all about. I know I ran into a lot of people. They would go, you know, I don't see anything where NARSA can help me. I got to pay them dues and I'm not going to get anything out of it. And I tell you what, the little bit of dues I paid over the years, I made millions of dollars doing, the, you know, with off NARSA uh, that uh, would never have been done if I hadn't belonged to them. Well, I appreciate that. And we're doing our best to really bring value for our members. And, uh, and, and it's stories like this that I get, you know, I try to tell people, look, all you need to do is, is pick up just one, one connection or, or one idea or one opportunity at a show. And, and that could pay your dues for the next 50 years. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's that simple. But again, uh, happy new year. Uh, it's, it's a new year. And then thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, and, and let's keep in touch. Okay. Thanks again. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you. All thank right. you so much, Joe. I appreciate it. All right. I'd like to take a few seconds to just talk about membership in NARSA. I know that uh, Bobby will agree with me that it has been very beneficial for, for us over the years. And we don't want anybody to miss out on the, on the opportunities that, uh, that NARSA idea can, can offer. You know, I would not be where I am today had it not been for the contacts that I've, I've made with NARSA, whether it's, you know, a heat exchanger coming in and I'm calling uh, a NARSA member in Louisiana for some tips on how to handle it, or whether it's a big generator job that came in. Everything I know about the generator business, uh, generator radiator business, I've learned through NARSA members. Um, it could be that. It could be just how to test something, uh, the specs. But uh, it, it's it's been it's been pivotal in my career, and and I'm really uh, I really encourage uh, our listeners to to consider joining NARSA Idea and um, and 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 making some good contacts and finding some opportunities. You know there are many benefits of membership in NARSA Idea. You have access to past technical presentations, webinars, our technical forum, the members directory, and of course our magazine. Remember, NARSA idea exists to create one idea, one opportunity, and one connection for you to be able to better succeed in your personal and professional life. If you have an idea for a future podcast, email me at mtaylor at narsa.org. Thank you for tuning in to Solder and Soot, a NARSA idea podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find future and past episodes on our website, narsa-idea.org or anywhere you listen to your podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening.